I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today we are bringing you the fourth installment of a very important conversation that needs to be had across every community, across every country, but in particular today, we are talking with Asian Americans, particularly East and Southeast Asians who live in the United States, who have been subject to increased racism and hate due to COVID. Now, this is our fourth installment, and we were delighted to welcome back Cynthia Chen, who was part of our first installment, which was the DNI Summit. And she was our moderator today. She is the president of Consumer Health North America at RB. And with her are nine incredible leaders from TikTok to General Mills, to Google, to Pinterest, to Visible, to Pixly. It's just a packed agenda. And we are so honored and delighted that everyone joined us today to share how they were feeling, how they are leading, and how we can all take steps towards systemic change together. Now, if you missed our first three installments, please check them out, starting with the DNI Summit, which led to a state of revolt, followed by Pride Stars. Coming up, we're going to be featuring a summit dedicated to Hispanics and Latinx, as well as people with disabilities and South Asians. Thank you for being part of this important conversation and have a super day. Hello there, and welcome to the Asian American Summit hosted by Adweek. I'm Ko Im, community editor and podcast co-host of Adweek. I am an American. I am an Asian American. I'm also a proud 1.5 generation Asian Pacific American. Before we get started, we want to also point to a few other discussions that are coming up. Uh, we have the Hispanic Latinx uh, Summit in August, as well as one for people with disabilities. Today's summit now is one of a series of deep conversations we've been holding around diversity and inclusion. Today, we focus on the Asian American community. Today is another chance to get real and get actionable. Today, we hear from illustrious Asian American leaders in our industry. 
They represent a diverse group in our country. Asian Americans make up 20 million of the U.S. populations. Our families come from over 20 countries. Some of our ancestors worked on the railroads or plantations that helped build this country and fuel the economy. And no, we are not going back to where we came from. We are the fastest growing racial group in the U.S. electorate currently. According to Pew Research, we've since surpassed Hispanics as the largest share of recent immigrants. Some of us are high income earners and highly educated, but that's not all of us. We are not a monolith and we are not a stereotype. Further, the model minority myth painting Asian Americans as meek, law-abiding, hardworking persons of color perpetuates the silencing and dismissal of this powerful demographic and the wide range and validity of our experience. When we were all put on pause during the pandemic, some of us stayed quiet as we braced for a rise in race-related incidents after we heard the words Chinese virus and Kung flu. An advocacy group says they've now marked over 2,300 hate incidents since the COVID-19 crisis broke out, from verbal harassment to refusal of service, even attempted murder against Asian Americans. Women are twice as likely to be targeted. Contributing factors include Asian Americans historically being racially associated with disease and existing bias about perceived foreignness over Asian cultures. Several of us defied expectations. Some of us became survivors of nuanced microaggressions even before the series of crisis hit our country. Many of us walked with the Black Lives Matter movement, a nod to the history of anti-racist solidarity against systemic racism. And now, what are we to do amongst all this uncertainty and social unrest lying deep in a recession? Today, we hope the conversation offers you insight and takeaways from Asian American leaders in the world of marketing and advertising. Thank you in advance for listening. Without further ado, we welcome Cynthia Chen, President of Consumer Health North America at RB, who also sits on our Adweek DNI Council and will guide today's thoughts. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Cole, for the introduction and your kind words. It is my great honor to moderate today's session. Before we start, I would like to take this moment to thank Adweek, in particular, Nadine Diaz for your leadership and continuous efforts on driving diversity and inclusion forward in our beloved industry. In addition, there is another leader I'd like to call out, Elliot Lam, hopefully that you are listening in, SVP at ANA. He was the original um, originator who got all the Asian American CEOs and CMOs together. So thank you, Elliot. Today, is probably one of the most profound moments of my professional career. This is because we have a panel with a completely different complexion of all the panels I joined in the past. And we are all Asian Americans here today. We have a meaningful conversation ahead of us. So let's get started. First, let's do a quick self-introduction. And we also have one spontaneous questions I just came up with. So this is a question. What is the best advice you've ever received? And what is the worst? Once you finish your section, please go ahead to call next panelist to start his or her introduction. 
Now I'll give you some time to prepare. I'll go first. My name is Cynthia Chen, again. I'm the president of Health North America. The best advice I got so far was there were only 30,000 days in life, so make it interesting. The worst advice I received was to expect that I could not make any true friends at work. So next, Kyle. Hi everyone, my name is Kyle. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Pixly. Um, the best advice that I've received recently um, is that um, things are never as good or as bad as they seem. It's always in the middle. And how you deal with success is equally important as how you deal with failure. Uh, probably the worst advice I've received uh, was on career advice of me having to be a doctor or I would be a failure. Or the Asian parents that ask us to become a doctor or scientist or engineers. Uh, I guess I'll pick on Boone next. Oh, hi, everybody. My name is Boone Lai. I'm the global, uh, VP of Global Partner Marketing at Cisco. Um, the best advice I've been given is actually a saying that I read somewhere, that if you change the way you look at things, the things around you change. So I thought it's a very nice way of looking at different perspectives. Uh, the worst advice I got is uh, just my mom kind of always worrying and stopping me from doing things, I would say. So uh, I'll pick uh, Brad. Thanks, Boone. Uh, I'm Brad Hirnaga. I work at General Mills and lead uh, the marketing for North America. Best advice I got is, is stay present. Be present in the moment, and in, it's a great way to enjoy, enjoy life. Worst advice is, is probably to pick success over happiness. Um, they're not, they're not uh, necessarily always the same thing. Um, I will pick on Marvin to go next. Hey everyone, good morning. I'm Marvin Chow. I'm a global marketing lead at Google. Um, I think the best advice I've been given has been really not to care too much about what everyone else thinks. And probably the worst advice, like many of us, is that, you know, if I don't study hard, I'll never amount to anything. So uh, I'm going to pick on Soyoung. Hi everyone, I'm Soyoung Kang. I'm the chief marketing officer at EOS Products, personal care company. Um, I would say the best advice that I ever got was that the legacy that we as um, leaders in our professional life um, will leave behind is less about the things that you did. It's more about the people that you helped along the way. And I think that the worst advice would be something similar um, about, you know, just become a doctor or a lawyer because that's the safest route that you can take in your career. So I am going to pick next on Helen. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Helen Lowe. I'm the SVP of marketing, overseeing our clients um, for the retail brokerage business at Charles Schwab. The best advice that I ever got was from uh, one of the best salespeople I've ever met. And his advice was, when you're doing well, everyone knows it, including you. When you're not doing well, everyone knows it except for you. And so be sure to ask for advice and ask for feedback proactively, uh, which I love. So always think of any kind of feedback as gift. Uh, the worst advice, just like everyone else is saying, to, to be a doctor. I was a pre-med starting in college, and I realized I hated it. So thankfully, I was able to switch. But guess what? I switched to engineering. So I also played a lot of You can't get any more stereotypical than that. All right. Uh, I am going to pick on, let's see, Minjay. Hi everyone, I'm Minjay. I'm the CMO of Visible, um, the first all digital wireless carrier in the United States. Um, 
think the best advice I've gotten and the worst advice, advice I've got are kind of two sides of the same coin. So the best one was be yourself. Um, it was hard to follow that earlier in my career or when I was younger, but now it's, it's a reminder to kind of stay true to yourself and anchor yourself in who you are. Um, the worst version of that in variety of um, versions I've, I've heard was some, some sort of um, lead with uh, fear. Um, and, and it was kind of modeled based on what we've all probably experienced or witnessed in, in different places as to what leadership looks like. And I was told in different ways that you need to be exactly this way to be a leader, which turned out not to be true. Um, okay, let's see. Nick, have you gone yet? I have not. Hi, everyone. I'm Nick Tran, head of uh, global marketing for TikTok. Um, or the best advice uh, I got was probably from my parents who encouraged me to do what I love. And they basically said, if you do that, you'll never work a day in your life. And they, they allowed me to pursue whatever I wanted to, to dream up. Um, the worst advice I probably received was, uh, it's actually a saying that means well, but act like you belong. But that idea of trying to act like you belong is actually um, counterintuitive because mm -hmm. we shouldn't have to act like we belong. You know, every, everyone, no matter who you are, where you're from, should just belong. Yeah. Uh, so with that, I'd like to pass it off to Judy. Thanks, Nick. Hi, I'm Judy Lee. I'm the Global Head of Experiential Marketing at Pinterest. And um, in terms of the best advice I've received, you know, it's very visual in terms of think of like your knowledge and your leadership like a candle and you're in a room full of candles. And by sharing that light, you light up the whole room, but it doesn't diminish your own light. Because I often think, sometimes think that people need to hold on to trade secrets or not share their knowledge, but I just think that mentorship and knowledge is um, something that we should give freely to everyone. Um, and then in terms of worst advice, I think there's a lot of themes because every time someone said something like, oh shoot, that's the one that I was thinking of. Um, but I think for me, maybe a different take is, you know, not to speak up. Um, you know, as a woman early in my career, people would say, you don't want to speak up too much. You don't want to come across as too aggressive because people won't like you. And so that whole notion of having to be liked and um, to kind of fit in and belong. Um, so let me see who hasn't gone yet. Has everyone gone? I, I think everybody has done that. But thank you. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for all your wisdom. Very, very insightful. Uh, as Cole mentioned earlier, amid the ongoing threat of the coronavirus, there are surging reports about xenophobic and racist incidents targeting members of the Asian Americans and Pacific Islander community in the United States. And these incidents obviously include being told to go back to China, being blamed for bringing the virus to the United States, being referred to with social or uh, racial slurs spread on or physical assaulted. Statements by public officials does not help neither. Um, they refer to COVID-19 as a China virus, Kung Fu or Wu Fu, and this exacerbated the uh, scapegoating and also targeting of the AAPI community. So in this environment, in this context, how are you personally navigating today's heightened discussion on racial and also stereotypes against uh, amidst the COVID bias? Uh, bias? Do we have a brave, brave soul here? Who wants to go first? I'll go, it's Helen. Um, yeah, just uh, as you're talking, Cynthia, I, I just feel so much rage. I mean, I'm just so outraged by all of this. Um, 
I actually have a friend who it runs an organization that tracks all these um, anti-Asian American hate incidents. There have been 2,000 of these incidents since March, March through June alone. And I think we've all seen that video recently of somebody who felt like he had the permission to say out loud in public in a restaurant just hateful slurs and terrible insults to a family that's having a birthday party. So um, sadly, that wasn't just an isolated incident. So I, I just feel really outraged, but at the same time, I feel really energized because I think it's galvanizing us as a community to come together. I mean, look at us. We, we've all been saying how great it is to have this community. We haven't come together before, uh, but thanks to you, to Nadine, to Elliot, you know, we're coming together and we're having this conversation. So I'm really energized about it. And I think we should focus on not only this kind of outright racism, which is despicable, we need to denounce it, but also what's less visible, but real. And that is the systemic biases and the negative stereotyping that all of us, and I'm sure all many people in the audience have felt. And that's something that I feel like we need to seize the moment right now and talk about it and have the conversation and shine a light on it and talk about what we can do about it. Yeah, very well said. I mean, look at us, right? So I was just talking yeah. about all our Asian-American leaders. We got together like a dysfunctional family. We got together. There's some, some new friends. There's some old colleagues like Brad. We used to, I used to work at General Mills. So, so great to see Brad here. So Brad, do you want to go for next? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's good to see you too, Cynthia. Um, I, I think it's interesting in a time, you know, I'm, I'm General Mills is headquartered in Minneapolis. And so obviously it's been the epicenter of, of, you know, the murder of, of George Floyd. And so I think that, that had a pretty profound effect. I know on me and a, a lot of the folks that, that work here at the company um, and everyone in this community. And so I, I gotta be completely honest, you know, I, my, my background is my dad's Japanese and my mom's white. And so I grew up not necessarily like feeling I had a lot of the same headwinds that I know other Asian peers and colleagues I've talked to. Um, and so while I grew up with that, I, I think what it, what it, I, I kind of felt a sense of guilt a little bit when, when things like that started happening that, you know, am I doing enough? Cause I look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, am I, how, um, you know, I'm not racist, but am I anti-racist? And that term has been kind of used a little bit more. And I think what this moment gives us um, all as leaders is an opportunity to, use our platforms and our experience as, as more and more people from Asian backgrounds and diverse backgrounds are coming up in companies to try to create a culture um, and try to create it to make it easier for people to come up. And I think that's been a, that's been a big learning. And, I, and to be honest, I felt a sense, a little bit of guilt and in, in personally of like, okay, how come I'm not doing more? How come I'm not doing enough? So I feel like um, what, what, what Helen said and what you just were saying, Cynthia is right. Like there's an opportunity I think here to have this community come together and, and it's so diverse in and of itself. I mean, where everyone's backgrounds are from, um, but to come together in a really meaningful way. Because I think what, what's been really great is, you know, watching, you know, Black Lives Movement and, and watching folks in, that are Hispanic groups that we have in our company, they, they've been rallying around this for a long time. And I feel like Asians don't often do that as, as um, overtly. And so maybe this is a rallying cry for us to be able to do that. Yeah, I think, Brad, you know, it's so, what you said is so right even within our Asian uh, Americans community, it's so diverse, right? So but sometimes you, because your face look like Chinese, right? Judy, you had a you know, story about yourself and people thought you're Korean, but somebody just thought that you are Chinese, right? So maybe Judy, you can sh uh, share some lights on this as well. Sure, you know, I think similar to what Helen had mentioned as well, like, you know, when a lot of this started, 
I felt a lot of rage, you know, rage for everyone who's kind of been at the receiving end of racism or hate. And I think, you know, it made me reflect a lot about my past. Um, I'm the child of immigrants, I'm Korean American, and I'm first generation here. And, you know, quite often I think about so much of my upbringing was about the American dream and being able to make it better than what my parents have or have a better life than what my parents have. But I think for many, especially when there are leaders out there who normalize hate speech and rhetoric, it makes it feel like it's okay to say that. And what we see are instances of people feeling really emboldened to hate. And I think um, you know some of you have touched upon that model minority myth. And I think it's that notion that Asian Americans won't stand up, that we won't fight back, that we won't um, say something when we're the target of that racism. And I think Co had mentioned that this is happening especially um, to women. And I live in New York. I live in a really diverse neighborhood in downtown Brooklyn. And so, it, you know, those instances have happened on the street. You know, I can't tell you the number of times that people pulled their eyes back to, you know, mock me, even when I haven't done anything, just walking. And so for me, I'm really focused on how do we, how do we prevent the American dream from becoming the American nightmare? And I think about my parents and kind of their whole intent for immigrating here is that they made a multi-generational bet. They knew that they would improve our lives as a family, but maybe not for themselves, but that for the future. And so for me, I'm thinking about what are the, what's that multi-generational bet I can make? I think that there's a lot of work to be done. And it's not that we haven't made progress in my lifetime, which I think we definitely have when I reflect about my childhood, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done. So I think what can I do to lay that foundation for the future and what progress can we make as leaders and use our platforms? Judy, thank you. Very well said. You know, if you think about, you know, growing up, uh, my parents always told me that don't stick out, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's anything, you don't want to be that sticking out, uh, you know, song because you will be beaten down right away, right? So it's very, very difficult. Our culture is very understated. So thank you for sharing that. Boon, uh, again, Boon, um, used to work for RB. Uh, so now, nice to see you again, Boon. Yeah, great to see you. Um, I have to say, you know, just based on what Brad and uh, Judy were talking about, I feel very similar in that I'm very concerned for my kids. You know, I have twin, uh, twin girls who are four-year-olds. Uh, they are, um, you know, mixed-race Americans. Uh, and, you know, the, the recent incident uh, with this tech CEO in the Bay Area really hit home because, A, it's so close to home. And the same thing is, you know, since I've actually, you know, moved here to the Bay Area, I actually thought, thought this is actually one of the most accepting cities in the world, right? I mean, if you think about the Asian population here, um, in, other, in addition to other minorities, but the fact that this person feels like he has the right to say that and to do that in a public place um, is just, you know, kind of crazy, right? At a time like this, you know, I know it's a crazy time that we're living in. So I think the first thing is, you know, I'm very concerned for my kids, you know, that they would be, you know, kind of bullied in school or, you know, the prejudice that they might face growing up in this society. And that is really galvanizing, you know, as we talked about, right, for me personally. But the thing, the second thing I would say is that it's actually quite empowering because you see now that people are capturing it. You know, I work for a tech company and technology is sort of the great equalizer now, right? It allows you to actually have a voice. It's actually allowing you to hold people accountable, you know, with this whole cancer culture. But it's also really, you know, making sure that people get, get um, you know, being held responsible for the actions that they are taking. So, you know, I actually feel very positive and optimistic that this time around we can make a change and that, you know, technology and our attitude can actually help and change us. 
Thank you. And then let me just think, uh, you know, Marvin, uh, you wrote an article which touched us, not only us here on the panel, but our broad Asian-American uh, Asian community. Would you please share some of your thoughts? Yeah, no, thanks, Cynthia. I think, you know, I think for, you know, of everything, it's been really confusing. And I think, you know, a lot of what Blue Line talked about in terms of like the, your kids and the generational part, I find is very interesting. And I think we have a lot of these intellectual conversations. And I think for a while, it was very intellectual for me. And I think like, like a lot of us who live in the Bay Area, I think it's very accepting. We have a certain amount of privilege. And I remember I was with my kids and the first time walking through a mall in the South Bay where a guy just started yelling at me and being like, you know, blaming me and yelling, you know, not a totally offensive, but you know, like go back to China. This is all your fault, blah, blah, blah. And I was with my kids and a little bit like you talked about Cynthia in terms of like, I kind of froze because I was taught to kind of brush it off, you know, and that was where I was learning. So I kind of brushed it off. I didn't want to make a scene. I didn't want to make, I didn't want to stand out. And when I thought back on it, it's like, that can't be how my kids grow up kind of thinking that they can brush it off and having to have to stand up. And I think all of this has come together to think about, you know, how do we take the progress that we've made and then look at the next generation, not my kids are, my kids are seven and nine, but people coming in the workforce today and give them a platform and kind of an agenda of what does, what does the Asian community want? You know, how do we come together? And I think this is how you dismantle communities is by fragmenting communities. You know, it's classic. And how do we come together and say, what is good for our community? What is good for the next generation, both in anti-racist work, in the workplace, in pay, in, you know, gender, gender equality, and, and the power that we have, I still think is so untapped. And so I think there's so many pieces here which I just find so fascinating and, and this this being a really interesting opportunity to take a big step forward. Thank you, Marvin. Anybody else wants to chime in here? Yeah, um, I think um, what a lot of people are talking about is this normalization of racism um, that's unacceptable. Um, so I echo a lot of the statements that everyone else made. Um, I also want to share perhaps a different point of view and uh, of where I think I've personally struggled related to this topic. Um, I think for um, a while I've struggled um, really having these conversations because I think during most of my upbringing um, I was almost ashamed or trying to distance myself from the culture and my ethnicity because it was a source of a lot of bullying growing up. And I know that there's probably a lot of attendees that feel the same way and a lot of people in high school um, feeling the same way as well, because um, it is a source of building uh, how you look um, growing up Asian American in the United States. Um, secondly, um, I was always um, afraid of having these conversations partially because I felt like, oh, no one cares what I think. I haven't done enough in my career or um, I'm not an expert on DEI. How am I qualified to have this conversation? And what I've learned um, and from others in the Black Lives Matter movement is that you can still speak up on your way to the top. You don't need to be at the top to have these conversations. And secondly, um, you don't need to be a DEI, DEI expert uh, to be united against systemic racism. Um, so um, those are a few of the things that I've personally struggled with and how, you know, I think over the last couple of months, um, I've kind of um, gotten better at it. So. Yeah, I love the uh, different takes and, and just wanted to add a different point of view as well. Um, I agree with a lot of what people are saying, but at the same time, you know, I've always kind of grown up as an optimist. And uh, I realized at one point when I started to feel a little bit of anger toward what was happening since, you know, racism and xenophobia are at an all-time high right now, uh, I've never had my mind change um, when someone was 
you know, uh, acting out in rage or aggression. Um, but that if you have that conversation, you open up a dialogue and you start with what's going on on the other side and you sort of leave with like, like love for the most part, you can get real deep conversation and have something come out that you never would have expected. So when I've, when I've experienced a little bit of that microaggression, I always try to take the time and just pause and ask them like, like, what do you, what are you feeling right now? Why is that something that you felt the need to say? And just opening up that dialogue kind of puts people in a little bit of a check. And then you start to talk about it and they realize like, oh, but that might not be the approach was if I feel like I, you know, uh, acted a little bit more aggressively, it wouldn't have come out in the outcome that, that I ended up having. If I can add to that, Nick, I will say yes, and, and some of you already talked about this just in terms of the feelings we're carrying with us, right? It's particularly in the form of anger and rage and what we're experiencing, what we're witnessing. Um, I've been reading a lot, just revisiting books like Rebecca Tracer's book that came out when Me Too movement was happening specifically around women and anger. Dr. Brittany Cooper's book about anger in the context of, of Black communities and Black women in particular. And anger in itself has been ingrained us as it's a bad thing. Like it's unbecoming, it's unproductive. And especially when we think about this in the context of Asian American community, a lot of the times of what you've already discussed of like, don't stick out is part of what you don't do with your anger. And only recently, as I'm dealing with kind of what I'm witnessing and what I'm experiencing, how do I not be ashamed of my anger? Like we should be so angry with everything mm -hmm. that is happening, but how do we do something productive with it? And mm -hmm. And, and as business leaders, as well as, well as you know, our kids, like people whose lives that we do have impact on, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot because part of this is also, yes, overt racism and comments and, and all of that. And what is that doing to how we feel and how we show up? But something I've noticed in myself personally is how much of that um, puts the management of how I show up, what I say, where I go in internal, you know, management of that, how much of that, more of that happens. So for instance, I haven't actually experienced in recent weeks, someone saying something to my face in public, fortunately, but it makes me actually feel more uh, safer when I wear a mask and go out. And I actually don't want to go out as much because I don't want to put myself in situations where that could happen. And then I realize, what am I talking about? Like, why do I feel this way? And the fact that a 41 year old grown woman with lots of things to be able to write, stand up for myself and, and show up proudly and not be afraid of going outside in my neighborhood. Like, why does that happen? And so if I, as a person who has a lot of privilege and experience to be able to show up in this place is um, unapologetically, imagine what other people feel, imagine what all of us may have carried in work environments or otherwise, and, and the psychological impact of what holds us back as a result. I, I think, Minjay, um, that, that's such a, thank you for sharing that. That's, I feel like you've given me a ton of for thought. Um, I I also have been afraid. And I think about um, what you just said about if someone like me um, who has the tools to be able to defend myself and defend my family, really, because it's, I've been afraid to walk outside with my kids. Um, and so if someone like me is afraid of that, then what does that mean for um, 
for the rest of the Asian American community, because we're, we're among a very rarefied circle of panelists here. We're talking about people who are, um, who are, uh, you know, educated leaders, um, have a lot of tools at their disposal, and yet we are not the typical member of the Asian American community. And I want us to all remember that, and for anybody who's listening to remember that we are um, a member of a community that's incredibly diverse, but also has a lot of economic and social um, diversity that is putting certain that is putting a large portion of the community at higher risk for um, being affected by um, you know the the racism and the incidents and all of that. Um, and I also think even back, a lot of us are are children of immigrants. And so I think about you know what does it mean if I can't walk outside my door? What did my parents do when they went across an ocean? Didn't know the language and embarked on this journey to to bring us what you know what Judy called the multi generational opportunities. And what does that mean in terms of how brave I need to be on behalf of my children to stand up for what's right? Um, a lot of folks have talked about being surprised about these things, touching them in their circles. And I realized that the, the predominant, you could know, Cynthia asked the question, like, how am I feeling? And the predominant thing that I actually realized as I really reflected on this, this question was, I'm feeling a little disappointed in myself, both for the feelings I just um, described, but also because I realized that so much of my, um, my, my journey to get to where I am today, coming from a children of very poor immigrants, has been to build a bubble around myself. And I don't know if that was conscious, but I definitely feel, if I look back, that I was creating this social, economic, and even geographic bubble living in New York City where I could feel comfortable and protected. But guess what? The bubble is fake. And for, you know, for anybody who thinks they're protected, there is no bubble. Um, and if, if COVID and the incidents that have happened recently have shown me anything, it's that, that it, it's not a real construct. Um, and that COVID um, is, and, and the things that we've seen are, those are a symptom, but there's an underlying real disease of racism that we do need to tackle for the long term. Thank you, Sonia. Um, Judy, do you want to add something here? Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, um, you know, Sonia and I knew each other when we were younger, so we're familiar with each other's families. And, you know, something she said really resonated. So my parents are, um, you know, Korean grocery store owners in a relatively, like, poor um, place. And so just hearing Soyoung talk about the bubble, because at one point um, during, you know, many years ago when I was still in college, um, and the Rodney King trials and all of that had happened in LA, that was the year that they had to install a bulletproof glass in the store. And so as So Young was talking about that bubble of protection, it is both like mental, but also physical in terms of things that our community has had to do to protect themselves against violence. And I think, you know, just kind of hearing about that, like definitely, again, takes me back and that notion of fear and what do I do with that fear right now? And a lot of where I'm trying to focus like that energy, because I think, you know, it's not that I'm denying my rage and fear because I'm accepting that. And that's, a, you know, built, has made me who I am today. You know, all the experiences that I've had and how do I make that into something productive so that we can have a more positive legacy. So we can build this foundation where people won't have to struggle and as far back as we do and that we can help normalize and that brands or companies won't be considered brave 
when they put forth images of empowered people who are typically underrepresented, whether it's the Asian American community or any communities, really, any underrepresented groups. Like, I wanna get to a place where a brand doesn't have to be considered brave for doing that work and it just becomes normal and it becomes, um, you know, part of who we are. And I think, especially in America, um, we often think about that notion of melting pot. And that's something that I used to embrace as a kid. And I thought that was empowering and inclusive. But in reality, it's about melting away your own identity. And it's about becoming this blob culture um, that is very specific to the US. And one of my friends in Canada had often said, you know, we think of it as a mosaic and everyone has their individual identities and they bring that and that is the culture um, that she uh, participates in. And so I've always lo loved that notion of a mosaic rather than a melting pot where all of our identities kind of melt away. And I think, I think it was Brad who had mentioned that earlier in one of our conversations about what can we do to like retain our identities and feel empowered by it. When for a few of us and me specifically, I did a lot to erase that, to try to assimilate and try not to feel different from the white communities that I lived in growing up. Yeah, I think Judy, you know, your story is a very, very good story. And your story plus um, Kyle, last time you mentioned about bamboo ceiling. Right, that led me to think, uh, actually, I thought about this quite a bit in the last two days. Um, you know, I actually, for Asian Americans, there's one I would call the only experience. Uh, this, this experience is really huge. Uh, you know, I personally heard so many times is, uh, you know, um, I would be the only Asian, Asian American, day-to-day um, -day life, uh, the only Asian American in a room, in a meeting, or in a team setting. Um, as a matter of fact, we have statistics to back it up. And more than 80% of the time, Asian Americans, we are the only one in the room. And this is even more so for Asian American women, especially in senior positions, uh, the only experience. We know from, our, uh, from the research that conducted past, in the past, uh, when you are an only, you are much more likely to experience microaggressions. Okay. It's, it's something sometimes I call that the paper of silent cuts, right? If you add up, so over time, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I personally certainly feel, felt that sometimes I felt I don't belong, right? Especially you guys, probably the first generation. I'm probably generation zero. So I know that I'm the only person that actually have, a, um, have accent. So sometimes I do feel that pain that I don't feel that I belong, right? But I always wake up and, and to, Sonia, your, your point, you know, your parents actually, um, you know, came to the United States overseas. And we are here, actually, we are in this pseudo bubble. So I'm going to motivate myself and stand up for myself, but also for our next generation. So what do you think, Kyle? Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that bamboo ceiling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is probably a topic that a lot of the attendees have thought about um, as well. Um, for me, uh, you know, there have been studies that show that Asian Americans are um, the least likely to get promoted um, to management. And if you take it and look at, say, the marketing industry as an example, um, so, you know, working in the user-generated content space, we get to see a lot of the diversity of all the amazing creators on platforms like TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. And what you'll notice in these platforms is that they tend to over-index for example, with the Asian American and, um, and African American communities, yet those communities are very underrepresented in both marketing and media. 
And for me, my, always, my question has always been, why? Why are there so few Asian Americans in CMO roles or C-level roles in these organizations? Like, is it a capacity issue, right? I don't think it's a pipeline issue if you think about the data that I just shared with you. Or is it a scenario where there are stereotypes where you think that we don't have the charisma or confidence or interpersonal skills to become a leader? So for me, the bamboo ceiling has always been a really fascinating topic because in history, when people talk about other minority groups, you know, they use Asian Americans to essentially try to um, put them down in some ways. And they have these conversations about pipeline issues. And I think the Asian American community shows that it's not just a pipeline issue when it comes to diversity and C-level positions. It's much uh, far greater than that. And I think the examples I gave in the marketing and advertising industry are probably good examples where, hey, look at the top creators on, platform, on, on some of these platforms. And you go to Can, you see a very, very different um, Point of view. Thank you, Kyle. This is Helen. I, I think this is such a huge point that it is not just the pipeline. It is not enough to get in the building because I think oftentimes Asian Americans as a whole, because of the the model minority myth or trap, they're like, oh, there are plenty of you in the building. Let's not worry about you. But it's not just about getting in the building, right? Once you look up a couple floors, and definitely at the top, as Cynthia said you don't see us, we're not there. And so it's more than a pipeline um, problem. I just wanna relate a story that hopefully many people uh, can relate to. Uh, early in my career, and this is related to what Judy said about the melting pot. Early in my career, um, I was told that I wasn't get promoted, wasn't gonna be get, getting promoted first batch, right? We all wanna be A students. Like, how do I get promoted in the first batch? And uh, my manager was very honest. He said, you know what, you're doing everything right. You're analytical, you're a good problem solver, you know, you get great results, but your behaviors don't fit the expectations we have for a leader. I'm like, oh no, I can fix that. I can get an A there too. So just tell me what I need to do. And he said, you are not aggressive enough. You are not commanding enough. So I asked for a role model and he named a couple of people. I'm like, wow, really? I got to go that far, you know, because it's a matter of overcompensating, right? Because I was seen as to me, so I got to go all the way to the other end. Um, so anyway, good news is I did that. I got promoted. But later in my career, pretty soon after that, um, I got a different kind of feedback. And it was from my peers. Helen is too aggressive. Helen is too focused on her goals, too focused on her team. She's too territorial. She's not collaborative enough. And really... I mean, what I said earlier is true. I take all feedback as a gift. So, you know, always try to improve myself. And, and I do that all the time. But I think it's just such a good lesson, um, you know, just for all of us, just to hear that out loud, because I know what happens to all of us, that it's not enough to just conform. It's not enough to just do, you know, study to the test. We have to find our own strength and be able to shine through so that we not only take the feedback and get better at it, get promoted, but that we also can leapfrog and build our own leadership model. Well, I'd love to hear others' well, thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to build on that a little bit. So what's really interesting is that, you know, I didn't grow up um, in the U.S. I grew up in Asia. And when I came here to college, one of the things that was really interesting was, you know, there's this like 15% of class participation in order for you to get your A. And I failed miserably my first year, and I've never been a great student anyways, but it did really teach me how to, you know, you know, come to the table and have, have a voice and, you know, be able to speak out, right, to prepare yourself and to always have a point of view. 
And I think that, that that, you know, kind of has helped me through my career working at different places and different continents to always, you know, come prepared and, and actually, you know, really uh, not be afraid to really say something or ask the questions, right? Our counterparts don't feel that way. So why should we? I mean, I think even just drawing on this whole conversation, when we were offered this opportunity to speak at this panel, I think we were talking amongst ourselves, are we ready to actually have this conversation? And the question is not really, are we ready? Is are we ready to actually have, you know, to, to actually put our voice out there and actually to start the discussion, right? To listen and to learn and to create that platform. Um, the second thing that I would just say is that just to build on your point, Helen, you know, um, I've read also a little bit more about, you know, the difference between mentorship and sponsorship, right? Mentorship is really about advising somebody, but sponsorship is really helping somebody advance their career. And so, you know, and, and I've read somewhere as well, I think the leadership um, advisory somewhere that, um, you know, if you look at, compared to our white male counterparts, one in five uh, white male have a sponsor. I think one in eight women have a sponsor and one in 12 minority have a sponsor. So what can we do, you know, especially in the position of power and strength to really help the minorities uh, representation around us in this area as well? Yeah, Boone, I think that's a key because as I was reflecting on Kyle's uh, you know, thoughts from a couple days ago, um, it hit me hard when I, I, I took this new role and I never felt that before, but I saw a lot of people reach out to me on LinkedIn, especially people in, uh, you know, in different parts of their career saying, uh, do you have any advice? You're the first Asian American I've seen get to this level. And I was sort of shocked because I've always looked to Marvin as like sort of like uh, the, the bar in my mind. So I was like, no, are you kidding me? There's, there's Marvin Chow at Google. And they're like, like, is there anyone else? And that's when it hit me. I was like, we don't have the network like other groups do. Like, you always talk about this like idea of like boys club or like different communities or different groups and they all have this network. And I realized like I hadn't done a good job developing my you know, personal network with you guys. So that's why I was so excited that Elliot invited us together. And I, I saw, you know, I was like, there are a lot of, you know, Asian Americans that are doing amazing things. It's sort of on me to make sure that I reach out and, and start to create this network so that we can also identify the like movers and shakers and the rising stars and help them and sponsor them in the same way that we are speaking about right now. Nick, Nick, you need to aspire bigger, but I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) To build on like what Nick and Boone said, I I think, I think it kind of goes back to this community thing where it's like, I think so many of us, particularly first generation, we were just trying to be the first in our family to make it at kind of all costs. It was very competitive. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, and not that I'm ashamed of that, but I think we didn't care about everyone else in the community. And I think when you look at other communities, I, like Tiffany R. Warren, who does ad color, they have this motto, like stand up, reach back. And I don't think we reach back enough. I don't think, I genuinely don't think a lot of us, if we ask ourselves, how much have we invested in the next generation of the next wave of Asians to be successful and invest in the network and invest in the sponsorship and the mentorship. I don't think we've done that because it was never ingrained in us that the success of the community was important. This, our success was important. And I think that's something that I've been thinking a lot about as I've progressed in my career. And I think doing things like this, because Nick is exactly right. I was shocked when I would do things and people would look at me and I'd be like, I'm just trying to do me. I'm like, you, you do whatever you need to do. I'm just trying to get by. And I'm like, I'm still in the struggle. But I think we have to recognize that we do have to reach back and we have to support the community or else everyone's on the treadmill and no one's going to make any progress. Yeah, I think, Marvin, you are too modest. You are doing really well. Uh, but I would say that today is the first step, right? So, and the other thing is, Nadine, actually, in Ad Week, there's a mentoring um, program, uh, DNI mentoring program. I'm, I, I'm part of that. 
So I would, uh, you know, I would encourage you guys to work with Nadine and to be part of that broader DNI summit. Anybody else? If not, we're gonna move to the next next question because we have lots of uh, you know other questions you know and, and more discussion to to be had. So making progress in these areas means placing them at the center of the organizational conversation. In times like this, that can be hard. You know, if you think about all the events have unfolded recently, they bring with them, uh, you know, obviously a hotbed of emotion. And you know, Song Yang, you mentioned anger, right? Moon um, Minjun, you also mentioned anger, the emotion. But emotion alone will not help us. So what are the things that you are doing in your company? What are the things that, uh, that you are doing to lead your team uh, throughout this um, pandemic? Anybody else? Yeah. I was I was just going to contribute because I think I think we've talked about um, you know fear and, and and anger. I think one of the most important things um, that I've heard repeated a lot during this pandemic is the word empathy, and I think that empathy is such an important part of leading through turbulent times, no matter what those times are. And and you know, frankly, this is the most turbulent time I've lived through in my career between the pandemic and, um, and, the, and the racial injustice movement happening across the country. So um, empathy is such a critical part of how we as leaders can be the most effective. It's about having empathy for um, the members of our team who are going through things emotionally. And to be honest, people on my team didn't know how I was feeling about um, some of the injustice happening against the Asian American community due to COVID because I didn't talk about it. Um, and, and, you know, they actually reached out to me and said to me, I saw your post on LinkedIn that you're participating in this thing. And I saw that you talked about having been um, on the receiving end of, of hate and microaggressions. And, and that was just, um, they, they were just really, um, you know, intrigued about hearing more about my story and my struggles. And what I realized was that um, part of leading with empathy is sharing um, what you've been through to create a more open environment for dialogue because my journey, my struggles, and the things that I've been through aren't necessarily going to be what different members of my team who represent many different um, backgrounds and ethnicities. It's not going to be the same, but it helps to foster a more open conversation in the workplace that allows all of us to be able to bring our whole selves to work. And then to bring to light other issues in particular, it's so critical with the Black Lives Matter movement happening right now, that, that people feel comfortable enough to bring their whole selves and to talk about these things because it is a really stressful time to be, um, to be, you know, a member of corporate America and, and also as, as a leader to, to be able to, to help the team um, to, to relieve some of that stress and have an outlet for a, a broader conversation is such a critical thing for us to be doing right now. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, as a leader, showing vulnerability is a, is a, you know, it's a greater quality. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to just build on that because I agree wholeheartedly with what So Young has been saying in terms of, I feel like, you know, listening and making space to have these conversations and by leading in that space. Um, I think especially as um, an Asian American woman, I feel like it's not just about the Asian American community for me, it's about all underrepresented groups and how do I create a safe space to talk about it? Because I think one of the things that happens and I'm sure we're all on social media is that sometimes you're like, wait, is this how people really communicate to each other? And I think people get so triggered um, around things and, you know, that lead to that cancel culture versus what if someone actually has a genuine question or 
you know, if somehow they just have been oblivious or, or like, they just don't know. And one example, like, I'm a huge lover of hip hop music. And it just kind of really bummed me out this week to see Cardi B post about, oh, I didn't know that chinky eyes was like a negative slang. And I was like, oh my gosh, really? Like, how, how have you gotten so far in your life and you didn't know? But the other thing is, is like, maybe she really didn't know. And so, like, how do we create that space, maybe not on social media, but in our business communities where people can ask those questions? Because um, I think what's worse is if they don't ask the questions and they remain ignorant versus if we can create those spaces where it is safe to have an honest and authentic discussion. One of the things that, that I think that was really well said, Judy. One of the things I think that's really kind of at the crux of this is even for us, as far as we've gotten, is how do we continue to be really vulnerable? ourselves and um i think marvin's comment resonated with me too like it's been a grind for everyone to get as far as they have but um and sometimes i think you know as a leader you're like i got to shut that vulnerability off but i think through covid and through you know just connecting like this a lot of these a lot of these pretenses go away and i think you're we're seeing more each other be human every day so that that's a way at least i think interpersonally like you know each of us can own it the second thing i that that's really i feel like is one of the things that I can control or teams can control is like, how do we continue? Cause we talk a lot about this. Every company I'm sure we all work for is saying the same things. They want diversity. They want inclusion. They want belonging. Um, but I think some of those actions are of how do you create the most diverse teams possible? And I think a lot of companies do that really well through, you know, Hogan assessments and strength finders and all that stuff. And that's great. And we need that. But the contextual lives that everyone else brings to the table with race and gender and affinities, like, that's stuff too that makes up the diversity of a person. And so I think the, the opportunities to springboard forward to really truly try to build teams that are very, that are very diverse. Um, Cause we all know we get to the best solutions on problems when we do that. Um, and sometimes that's been hard. I think we've looked at it too narrowly. Um, and so there's an opportunity to really like lean into that and figure that out. Just which I, which I believe will help us pull in folks that may have been left out of uh, left off teams before. Yeah. Um, I think um, for me, um, what I've said internally is that it's more important what you do internally than what you say externally. But if you do say externally, your actions need to be consistent. And I think as a leader, sometimes during these conversations, um, your expectation of yourself is to have all the answers. But I think you don't have to have the, all the answers, but what you absolutely need to do is listen. Um, so for me, uh, part of that was just listening to other people's opinions internally. Um, and you know, they have a lot of good suggestions. And secondly, um, just communicating early and often, even if I didn't have the exact perfect statement internally, taking them through the thought process or the timeline in which we think we're gonna do something. And then in addition for me personally, um, this was a unique scenario because part of the reason why we do what we do is to bring more diversity uh, to marketing. Uh, so it's something I've been personally very passionate about over the last decade. So for me, it was just about make sure we double down and amplify the voices of others um, um, that have made a, a lot, have done a lot of great work in this space. Um, so if I could add, add to that, um, it, to your point, Cynthia, emotion is emotions, but acknowledging with and what you do with it is incredibly important. And so in the context of more recent events, um, one of the things that we've been doing at, at the company level is carve out spaces for emotion and learning and empathy versus carve out spaces for action. Um, at first we were trying to do all at the same time. And sometimes it was really difficult because we're all in different places. We, we bring different experiences and Judy, to your example, that's the most extreme kind of right version of like, where, where are we right now? And 
Um, one of the things that I've really learned is that, man, people are on different spectrums based depending on where you grew up or how you, what your experience has been. So depending on that, some people are super close to action. Others are still on their journey of action. But the, the point is we need everyone to be as close to action as quickly as possible. So how do we make that happen um, as companies, as business leaders and programs? Um, but, but the other thing is, and, and we talked a lot about kind of like we in our roles, like how do we navigate these situations or what is it? Cause this is a long game, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, to your point about the multi-generational impact of what we need to do here. So before I took my job at Visible, I actually briefly considered going into HR um, because people and culture are really the true foundation and ingredients to how we live and work together. Right. And, and ultimately drive results as, as businesses, um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe that'll be true for me later down the road, but the reason I decided to stick to the path I'm on right now is because every one of you and a lot more of you that I'm not necessarily seeing your faces as attendees, unless the business leaders do and practice the behaviors we want to see in workplaces, as great as HR partners and people operation partners and DA and I programs can be, it's not going to be as impactful as us practicing and pulling people along. So mm-hmm. that's something that I'm, I'm thinking about a lot. And um, I would love to learn more from all of you to be able to make this into a systematically positive progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can build on that a little bit. You know, I think a, a, one of the learnings that I had recently is, you know, the ability to give permission, right? To give permission to my team, to give permission for them to express how they feel. And, and it's kind of interesting, you know, I talked about all these different perspectives. You know, we all work for global companies. Um, and, you know, so, you know, with all this, you know, fast changing geopolitical situation, you know, uh, 5G and all those things, we can bring our perspective based on, you know, our culture, our background and, and where we've worked before. But the other thing that's really interesting is I have a lot of my friends outside of the US asking me, why is it so difficult for Americans to wear masks? You know, what's going on with the Trump administration, right? Like, you know, and, and so I think, you know, it's, it's be, being able to have those open dialogues to try to share the perspectives and the history as to why we behave the way that we do. Um, and, you know, one really interesting example was, um, you know, my team actually came to me and said that they wanted to actually have a DNI panel in my all hands meeting. And I was very, very nervous about it because I didn't know what to say or do or act. Like I didn't have the answer, but, you know, because, you know, but I thought that this was such a right time and it was something that we were all feeling so passionate about. So they had a panel with um, African-Americans, with Asians, with white, um, and, you know, they basically, you know, just shared their perspective. And it, what really, really came out that was very positive was that this, this was actually our highest rated town hall. And it's just basically people wanting to have a platform and an ability to actually share their opinions. And so that was actually a big learning for me, right? To be able to give permission to my team and to actually, you know, express that vulnerability as well. Yeah, I just want to add that I think we're all talking about how we're leading in this moment. And someone said earlier, Minjay, I think you said, this is a long game too. Like, how do we seize this moment? How do we take this moment to think about our leadership and how do we contribute and, and bring the whole community along? Um, And so I just want to suggest that there's mentoring, there's sponsorship, and then there are scalable ways to level the playing field. How do we build scalable ways to level the playing field? And that's definitely not something that we can do on our own and possibly not even each company. 
Um, I do want to mention an organization that I've been involved with, just as an example. It's a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to building leadership for the AAPI community. It's called Ascend, um, just the word Ascend, Rise Up. Um, and what I love about that organization is that it really believes that we can empower ourselves as well as raise awareness and build advocacy uh, with corporations. So they have a leadership development program with titles like the Asian, uh, what is it, the model minority myth, the Asian American model minority myth or something like that. Um, and it really goes at the heart of how do we become leaders? How do we become strong leaders? Taking into consideration some of the blind spots that we might have as perceived by others and still retain our authenticity and our strengths. And I think if we can all think about ways to build that sort of platform, whether it's with nonprofit organizations that already exist or within our own community, marketing, it, you know, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity to do things like that so that it's really scalable because we need to reach behind and pull a lot of people um, so that they can all rise up together. Yeah, I think that Helen, that, that word scalable is super, super important. I would actually take this um, one step further. One is that we're making this impactful, but the second one is scalable. And the third one is how can we make this sustainable, right? So, so because we are in this moment and you know, Asian hate crimes is at the heat of it. So we're talking about this. But for me, it's you know, to Minja on your point, it's not about only about now. It's about how do we make that sustainable? Five years later, we can come back to say, you know what, we actually made a huge progress. Uh, I would love to hear the panelists, uh, your insights. So, I, you know, I, I completely agree with you, um, Cynthia. I was, as I was thinking about, um, you know, how, how do we, um, you know, move, move these issues forward? I was thinking about how, like, we, we need to work hard to not get complacent because COVID will end at some point. And with that, the um, specific incidents that have brought us together as a community around like racism against you know, people who look like us in the middle of um, coronavirus, that, that will go away. But you know, like I said earlier, that's a symptom. That's not the disease. The disease is racism. And um, when, when COVID goes away, I, just, I would just encourage us all to remember that the disease still exists. Um, it, it exists for you know all all minority groups, and that the you know Helen mentioned the model minority myth, and I was thinking about it more, and because I actually have had people like you know ask me, you know what's what's wrong about being considered good? Like why why what's bad about that? It's it's because it's a conditional acceptance into the society. It is a it is it has an asterisk next to it um, that you are acceptable if you conform to these specific standards and parameters. And that in and of itself is racism. And what you can see is that when the going gets tough at times like this during COVID, that that conditional acceptance goes away um, for some people. And then you really see the, the, the ugly symptoms come out. So, um, you know, I completely agree with Minjay and Helen. It's, it's a long game. Um, but I think what's really great is that we're having the dialogue now to be able to call it what it is. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I really firmly, um, you know, hope that we all continue these dialogues long past when this specific era is behind us. In, in addition, just to add on to the model minority myth, um, you know, I think the Asian American community also needs to do a better job of um, rejecting um, some of the model minority myth because over the last you know, a few weeks, it's been used. Um, and the idea of the Asian American uh, model minority myth has been used um, to negate 
the existence of racism towards other communities. Um, and I think it's something that, that um, needs to be said and addressed. I think it's, it's really interesting. Like, I agree, like, you know, even going back to Minjay's like productive anger point, like I think things that we do to break the stereotype are really important. I think, and once again, the next generation will do that. And I think if you go back to, you know, the origins of the model minority phrasing, you know, I'm pretty sure like it was created by, you know, by white people to try to get black people to behave. You know, they created this term to say like, why can't you be like the Asian people? They're the model minority. And I think it was just, even the phrase itself was meant as a derogatory way to say like, oh, why can't you just get, you know, fit in and kind of like get like pretend that you belong in that sense. And so I think that, you know, going back to all racism, I think it has interesting roots in that sense. And, you know, I kind of agree with everyone else. I think it is going to be a long game. I think, you know, I always go back to, you know, I was watching, you know, Dave Chappelle had his stand up on Netflix like a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago, I don't know, COVID time, I can't remember. But it was like, you know, he was kind of joking. He's like, you know, I'm done with you motherfuckers. He's like, you next generation, you have to take it. He's like, I've taken it as far as I can go. I want you to take it, not because he's being lazy, but because once again, the next generation will have a new spin, a new bar of what success is. And I think sometimes, you know, I think we have to check ourselves and be like, is our bar even good enough? You know, because our bar is from when we were coming up and it's like, oh, is that like good enough? And I think there's a level of like, re you know reestablishing what the bar of success is for the next you know 10 15 20 years is going to be really important and help us all frame what we should be doing and what we should be working towards you know uh, it's, it's oh go ahead go ahead Judy. i was going to say you know when i think about the future just like building on what a lot of people are saying because i'm in marketing i think in threes in, ter in terms of like one is like people people and representation like what can we as marketers do to ensure that we are represented. Crazy rich Asians shouldn't have been like a phenomenon. That should just be normal. Asian Asians should be able to play Asians in movies and that shouldn't be an exception. So I think it's people, not only in representation in terms of our campaigns and what we do and what we can influence, but also the teams and kind of making that space for people um, from a leadership perspective and building pipelines for all underrepresented groups overall. So I think people is one. I think the second is wallet and who do we choose to invest with? What are the partners and the companies and the agencies? And I think, um, you know, whether or not it's true, I, I, I often think back on the, the myth of Beyonce leaving that room with a sportswear brand because no one in the room looked like her. And so I think, you know, as we think about where do we invest our, our money, um, I think that's another kind of powerful way that we can express ourselves or, or figure out how do we have more equity. And then I think third is education and influence. And I think that's, you know, a lot of what we're doing here today. And how do we continue to make space to educate others um, and use our influence, um, you know, in varying degrees to, to amplify these voices and have these discussions. Because I think the other thing is we don't win when we're in a room where we're this wonderful panel of Asian Americans talking only to other Asian Americans. It's when you know, that aperture is broadened. And then there are people of multiple ethnicities and backgrounds in the room with us. And we're all having yeah. this conversation together. Yeah. Oh, I love that, Judy. I that, to, uh, sorry, oh, go ahead. But, oh, yeah, no, no, you I was going no, 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 to say, I was, was going to bring up a point about marketing too, because I think the, um, the way that we can all think about roles and the people that are on this, that listening on the, on, onto this panel that are all in marketing, I think we're fortunate to be in this industry um, because our voices and the platforms that we, that we run with on big brands that everybody knows about or companies that are really important, um, 
it, it's just another good reason that we all didn't choose finance. Cause uh, this is, this is a, pla- a place that we can actually be really bold with how we want to communicate. And as we get to more and more folks that are in these roles, I, I think Judy's right. Like the people that we choose to partner with, the culture that we choose to amplify and build are all opportunities for us to, to, to create the, the, the right type of equality and the right type of images that we want as people go forward. So much, I think maybe Kyle talked about this, so much of the culture right now is being created by all sorts of different parts of, 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 of young upcoming Asian influencers. And I think as brands, like, you know, oftentimes we'll call multicultural spending. And I know at the top of multicultural spending is Hispanic because it's the biggest. Um, and, and then there's black because it's really very influential. And then it's like, oh, and by the way, if there's anything left over, Asian also. And by that, by that point, there's not, enough, there's not enough dollars to go around. And so I think it's going to take some brands and brands that we probably all control and other people on the, on the call to say, how do we actually like make some choices here and like lean in here? Because with Black Lives Matter and everything happening, I'm sure lots of the brands out there are leaning in hard on that. And it feels like it feels timely, but it's also because it's such in our face. We got we to gotta be championing this, this, this community as well so that we can make it feel like it's in people's faces. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah, I Sorry, Cynthia, with, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. You, you're absolutely right. I could not agree more. Um, I would say that I always say that to my team is a hashtag, be a helper. Right? So yeah. what I mean by that is great power comes with great responsibility, as you said. right? Um, I would say there are three things that I will commit to do. First and foremost is hiring and promotions. Make sure that they are fair. right? So Helen, your, your experience was not isolated. I had the same experience when I was younger. The second one is that how can we foster inclusive and respectful culture? And, and I think that somebody mentioned that diversity and inclusive are different. We're always counted as diversity, right? So Asian Americans is always diversity, but inclusiveness, we're not part of that, right? So how can we change that? And the third piece is how do we dedicate to make only, I said only experience really rare. We should not be the only Asian American we should not be the only Asian American female to be in the room, particularly in a senior positions. Um, can I just build on that, uh, Cynthia? I think, you know, sort of for myself, I think the three things I would kind of focus on is at the end of the day, we're all humans and we're leaders. So the first step is to really, uh, a very small step, but to recognize that this is stressful time for everybody and take time to ask people how they are, right? To really give that permission to have that conversation and to be vulnerable. I think the second thing is, as we talked about earlier, to report racist accident incidents and classify them as hate crimes, right? We want to see those, you know, we want, we need to document that uh, so that it actually gives us, um, you know, leverage and data to have those conversations. And then the third thing is really trying to stay positive myself and focus on what I can drive, what impact I can make. And, and as part of that, you know, uh, I've been working with an NGO as well called Multiply, Multiply Effect Pledge that takes a pledge to say we will sponsor one person of a minority talent to advance in their career. Uh, and the website for that is multiplydiversity.com. So that's something I would encourage and challenge our panel to do that as well. Anyone else? Yeah, um, I think for me, one would be you know paying and promote people based off of their talents and not just their privilege. Um, second would be to um, push for more diverse content um, because I personally believe um, in the power of storytelling, and there's both a business case and a moral case for more diverse content. And, and to echo kind of some stuff that Nick talked about on the optimistic side, 
there are some amazing stories out there. And the marketing and advertising industry plays a critical role in shaping culture of society. And there are some amazing stories that are out there to be amplified. And that storytelling helps humanize different people as well. And then last but not least, um, support small business. There's already great uh, entrepreneurs out there um, that are doing some amazing work. Um, and, you know, they've been uh, really hurt during COVID. And if you look at the diversity of small business owners, um, you'll notice that they very much make up that American dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I just, I, sorry, just, to, just to add to Kyle's point, um, in addition to what we're doing within our organizations, I also try to see how we can influence the mission of the companies that we're at. If you look at the list of companies that we all work for, they're significant. And if we actually rally our passion into what the company's mission is as well, there's so much we can do. Like I'm thinking about my, my situation alone and every day I think about how can I amplify underrepresented voices? How do I bring those to light? And how do we democratize content at scale and showcase those uh, folks that otherwise wouldn't have been seen? And that sort of gives me that, that fire to keep going. I think I, I'm also building on something that, uh, that Kyle said, um, but you, you know, you talked about representation and in particular, um, when you think about creators um, and the industry that I work in, which is, you know, beauty and personal care, I think having um, and embracing and being careful about how we think about beauty standards um, across different um, groups is a really important one as well. And that maybe it's a very specific thing to my industry, but, but it's been a really vocal, uh, a really, um, like an issue with a lot of spotlight in terms of, um, you know, specific to the Asian community, I think, you know, different standards of beauty within, um, within Asian faces, it's such an important part of being able to see, um, you know, the the beauty and how different we all are. And, and I think that that goes for um, all different groups of color. And I I know that we've, there, there's been a lot of conversation lately in, in particular around like skin color and, representing darker skins as being beautiful. And um, I would encourage, um, you know, everyone who's participating in this to think about Asian beauty and how it it spans a very, very wide range of different types as well. So if there's no other comments, I will go go to Q&A from attendees. So I have, uh, we have a lot of questions here, but uh, let me go through this. The first one is, what is being done to improve Asian American promotions into management? First question. Are there being, are there things being done? Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, I guess the, the question that, are there anything being done? If so, what have been, be, you know, what have been done so far? So, you know, the, the silence tells me that not a lot of things have been, have been done. So, so maybe we can, the panelists can share, how did you get to the top? So I actually want to pick a Marvin, right? So Marvin, you are doing really well. And Nick was talking about, the, yeah, you are the inspiration. How did you get to the global marketing at Google? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I think, I mean, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because, you know, I got to where I am by kind of, you know, like the Nick thing, like acting like I belong. Like I, I got there by, you know, there's a lot of talk around code switching and like, you know, how you have to fit in to kind of, get there. And I think I did all of that. And it's like, I think it, it worked. But when I look at, once again, people coming up now, I tell that story, but it's not the advice I give because it shouldn't be how you shouldn't have to fit in to kind of, or, or conform to the Anglo-Saxon leadership model to get ahead. And I think a lot of the conversations that we have, or I've had with different people coming up is just, you know, one on, on the people side, like, 
how do you flex different kinds of leadership styles? You know, I think many companies have this Anglo-Saxon leadership style, which is also why a lot of Europeans get promoted because it, it comes from Anglo-Saxon. It's not, it's not just an American thing. It's just, it's an Anglo-Saxon thing. So how do you flex if you're introverted or if you're a language barrier, how do you flex different ways that you can lead and be effective in your job? And then on the, on the leadership side, how do we become more embracing of other leadership styles? Because I think it goes back to proximity. Like if everyone that you are around is like this loud, boisterous leader, then you just think everyone needs to be this loud, boisterous leader to be successful. And you have to have people you can point to that says that that person's not an asshole, that person is not super loud, that person but is still really effective and can drive followership. People want to follow that person and, and, and do what she or he wants to get done. And I think that on both sides, like really helping both sides bridge that leadership gap, I think is the most important thing. And I really hope that, you know, we shouldn't, everyone has to flex a little bit to be a little bit who they aren't, just as normal as a leader. But I think having to pretend to be or fit in to a culture that's not yours is just, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like that. Helen, you have anything to add? Well, I, uh, that resonates a lot with me, Marvin, what you said about having to flex on both sides. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, that's why I, I personally really benefited from leadership development where I became more self-aware. I think self-awareness is a really strong asset really for anyone um, in leadership development and in life and everything. Uh, but it really became self-aware that these are my blind spots when it comes to the mode I have to fit in, but at the same time, I shouldn't have to conform. Like, it, it's a real finesse. Like, how do I fit in to the mode so I come across as the right leader that everyone expects? But then how do I also shine a light on what's authentic in my own strength? Um, one of the reports that I read um, a couple years ago was really instrumental in sort of helping me with that, my own journey. And it was a report that was done to study um, minority women of all colors, women of color and how they rose up through the ranks. It was a qualitative study, but it was a big enough sample. And the surprising finding was that these women made it because they looked for the white space. It was like true innovation. And the reason is obvious when you say it out loud, they're overlooked for the most sort of sexy opportunities. And so what they did was they applied all their smarts to find the next opportunity that no one was looking at, at the time. They found the white space, they pitched it, they got the leadership, and then they grew that. And so they became the leaders. And I, I just thought that was such an important lesson, which is that we need to look to our own strengths, what we're good at, and look for the white space or just look for the sexy space. It doesn't matter, but apply our own strength and our own brand, if you will, um, to, make, to make it there. Yeah, so, so for me, uh, I want to share something here as well. For me is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very self-aware. Uh, even my accent is very, very strong. You know, I definitely is not, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon, right? So uh, the first foremost is that I tell myself I need to work extra harder, right? I need to be better than anybody in anything I do. Uh, the second piece is that when you are ready, you also need to be, you also need to voice out. I'm actually, nobody believes that, but I'm actually extremely introverted. I'm very, very shy. Um, as a matter of fact, um, you know, I think, Judy, you were talking about um, Beyonce. When I was at General Mills, um, Brad, you will appreciate that. Uh, I was ABM in a class of 50, 50 people. 
I'm the only person who is not from top five schools. We have lots of people from Harvard, HBS, Kellogg, and top five business schools. I'm the only, probably only international, and the only person um, who, you know, who is not from top five schools. So I had this a huge chip on my shoulder. So at that time, I came across a documentary talking about Beyonce, and Beyonce has a, a stage name, Sasha Fierce. So I gave myself a stage name. <laughs> so from that time on, I pushed myself. I, I follow that rule. If you push yourself 21 times, if you push yourself to talk at a meeting 21 times, it becomes a habit. And it, ha it worked for me. So, so again, you know, you got to work, uh, you got to sharpen your chop um, and be the best of everything you do. At the same time, when the time is ready, go out and tell people it is a time you deserve a promotion, you know. And sometimes people will say, well, you are, you are, you're probably a little bit too aggressive, a little bit like a bee, but it's okay, right? So I'm okay for people to tell me that I'm a little bit aggressive, right? Although deep down, I'm, you know, from time to time, I'm actually scared because I'm introverted and I'm shy, but I forced myself and it worked. I, I love that. I'll build on that a little bit, you know. I think one of the things is really learning to build our differences as a strength, right? And I, I, I shared this in our panel discussion before, you know, uh, where, you know, like the top three most asked questions in my career, right? Which is, uh, you look very young, where, you know, how old are you? Uh, are you really good at math? Uh, you speak really good <laughs> English, where are you from, right? So, you know, I had to learn to use those, uh, you know, in, in my career and, and acknowledge that upfront. Like when I came for my interview at Cisco, you know, my, my first thing I said to the CMO was, you know, by the way, I know I look really young for the job, but, you know, and then I kind of share. And it's not a little bit apologizing, but it's actually trying to sort of recognize that upfront and use it to your advantage. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, you know, if I look at my career and when I got, you know, finally made the executive and became VP, it was because I had a sponsor in the room who was a woman who was not, you know, from, uh, you know, it was Australian actually, and she believed in me. And so I think the onus is also on us to recognize those, those differences in the talent within our organization and help to promote that. Yeah, I don't think I would be where I am without people advocating for me. And um, one thing I would say, especially for, you know, myself, who I feel like I'm still coming up in my career is that um, it's incredibly empowering to see people who look like you be celebrated. Like, I cannot stress that enough, especially in industries in which Asian Americans are not well represented. The, the two biggest things I'm taking away from this are how awesome Minjay's glasses are, and then everyone in the chat <laughs> asking about your stage name, Cynthia. Like, I, I, you're going to have to come back to that. The one thing. Next time, when I have a couple of... Um, you know, you use it as a teaser? I like that. That's good. I can speak on behalf of Cynthia too, because I did work here with her and she is a badass. So um, the, the only other thing I was going to say, because I know there's a lot of talk about how much leaning into yourself versus you kind of have to kind of give up, acquiesce a bit to fit in. I would say the further along you get, obviously the easier it is to lean into yourself, but everything that's a stereotype and things that are outside of that are superpowers for everybody on this call, right? Everybody on, in, in, that's listening in, you know what your superpowers are. If you don't, like be reflective and figure that stuff out. Because I think um, it's easy to try to fit into places where you don't look the same, but oftentimes what your superpower is going to be really different and companies, if they don't even know it, it's going to be extremely valuable for them. So that's one thing we talk about a lot and even just in feedback with, with multicultural or non-employees is like, how do you find your superpower and like lean into it in a hard way? And then I love what Helen said about white space. I mean, we do that as marketers. Where's the white space? Like figure out where that white space is for you in your career and use that superpower where it lines up with that. And you will be 
very successful. Now that doesn't take away from all the, the support needed around um, from other leaders and seeing themselves in the work. But I think from a tip, at least that I got that that's been a helpful one is, is to not, is to not ever shy away from that. One other build to all of this that I would also make is, um, you know, I think we were, some of us were actually joking about this too, in terms of the tiger moms that we may have had before they were known as tiger moms. And, you know, even just thinking about my own experience, like, I got into a number one liberal arts college and my mom was like, why couldn't you get somewhere better? It's <laughs> like, well, I don't know what to do with that. But I think, you know, part of that, you know, even though I can joke about it now and I think we all have those experiences, like you get an A, why can't it be higher? That sometimes that, like, you know, we, we, we carry that with us. And I think, you know, my main advice, especially for those who may have come up with those, those types of moms or parents is own your confidence and, and really kind of, you know, you're doing great and um, really kind of own that development. And I think even just like the qu question, like what's being done, I would actually flip it and said, what are you doing? What, are, what can you all do to really own that and um, kind of trailblaze? Because I think, you know, we've all talked about, this is a multi-generational bet. We're gonna make as much progress as we can, but then it is like, you know, what will that look like in 20 years? I have no idea, you know? And, and my hope is that it's going to look really different. And, and that these challenges may not go away in its entirety, but there'll be a new set of challenges that we'll all need to figure out and, and tackle. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll just say a lot of questions that I've seen come in so far have been, what are some tangible structural things that you've experienced or you're doing to right, like help all of what we've been talking about? Um, just from my perspective, the reason this might feel a little squishy to you is I think because we're all going through a very transitional period. We all as people, we all as leaders are realizing what and how we've been living with. And, and, and for me personally, I, I've definitely experienced everything that you've just talked about of like living a part of my life, just trying to fit in. Like what are the management skills and tools that I crafted to just like fit in so I can move up or belong or get stuff done. Now to it's like a whole other thing, just trying to undo and unlearn those habits so I can be like, you know what, this is me. Like you take it or leave it and I'm going to get stuff done and you will have a seat at the table for me because I can be all of these things. People are not one thing. And so I, I think to, to everything, what everyone said here, the reason I think we keep coming back to people is that's one thing you can count on, both for intangible and tangible stuff. Tangibly, those are the people who open doors for me, people who spot opportunities before they exist, people who look at things and realize that there may be a fit between what I can bring to the table versus what they might need um, to solve for. And that includes a lot of people, not just other Asian Americans, um, but like white men in, in powerful jobs. And I've definitely had really good mentors and people who've pulled me up to their tables and that's why I'm here. Um, but the other reason people I think is really important to us in intangible ways is because they validate my experience. They give me the strength and the courage to be at a place like this, to share all these things that I feel really uncomfortable talking about, because you make it okay that, yeah, like what you went, went through, what you experienced, what you're feeling is valid. So um, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have found this community more recently and, and people who've always been there for me to kind of remind through thick and thin, like really like what, what anchors you, who are you and always being able to come back to that. I love the swagger, Minjay. 
Anybody else? We have a, a few other questions. I don't think we'll be able to get to them, but we promise yeah. that we'll get. Sorry. Yeah, I just I just wanted to um, just share something that somebody told me once, which actually I think is very um, related to a, a things that you know people just said, which is like amazing. But um, but that you're more likely to be successful in your career by doing more of what you're good at and not trying to fix all the things that people tell you you're bad at. And I think that that's like actually something that I, you know, I, I have like 20, 20 hindsight. I can look back and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it's something that I just wanted to, um, to throw out there for anybody who's earlier in their career. Anyone else? Any other uh, wisdom that you want to share before um, we actually close the session? This last chance. <laughs> Guys, three, two, one. <clears throat> so for the attendees, we will not be able to get to all the questions, but we promise that We'll, we'll post our answers. Uh, I think that Nadine and Heidi and Cole, you guys know where to post it, but we'll, we'll promise we'll get back to you guys. In closing, uh, on behalf of the entire panel, I would say a few things. One, uh, again, I'm summarizing today's uh, panel discussion. Seizing this moment in a productive way requires a rational and systematic approach. Uh, and also both steps, both actions versus emotionally raw uh, conversation alone. The most important question is how do we keep the momentum? It is not the issue now we're facing. How do we keep this going? How do we keep the intensity we feel around this to make a longer term change? If we as business leaders um, are willing to put so much time and effort into standard business in initiatives, <clears throat> then we need to be willing to make an even longer and bolder commitment to equality and equity. This is really our moment. This is our historical moment. And together, only by together, we can be stronger. So thank you to all the panelists for your reflection on social and racial justice and equity. This is timely, insightful, and actionable. And thank you for everyone who called in um, today. I'm so touched, I'm truly touched. Um, you know, I also shared some, you know, uh, my experiences, which I have never shared before. Um, but your leadership and your empathy and love, uh, let's keep that momentum going. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I would love your help in sharing CMO Moves with one of your friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy it too. And if you have time, I would really love your review or ratings on Apple or SoundCloud. So thanks again and have a great day. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.